Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. Let's get started. I'm speaking today with Dr. Joshua Kim from Dartmouth and Dr. Edward Maloney from Georgetown. As a quick reminder to our listeners, in this podcast series, we are exploring dead ideas in teaching and learning. In other words, ideas that are widely believed, though not true, and that drive many systems and behaviors in connection to teaching, exercising what Diane Pike called the tyranny of dead ideas. Dr. Joshua Kim is the Director of Online Programs and Strategy at the Dartmouth Center for the Advancement of Learning, and he is a Senior Fellow for Academic Transformation, Learning and Design at the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown. Josh is also the author of Inside Higher Ed's Learning Innovation blog. Dr. Edward Maloney is the Executive Director of the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship and a professor of the practice of narrative literature and theory in the Department of English at Georgetown University. He is also the founding director of the program in learning, design, and technology. And together, Josh and Eddie are co-authors of two books, Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education, which came out in February 2020, and The Low Density University, 15 Scenarios for Higher Education, which came out in August 2020. A very productive year for these two colleagues. All right, we will dive into questions. So, Eddie, in your book, Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education, you offer a brief history of what you call a turn to learning that you cite as long in the making but with a noticeable push forward since 2012. Would you give our listeners a brief summary of that history uh, behind this turn to learning? Uh, Absolutely. Um, First, I just want to say thank you for having Josh and me on the podcast this morning. Really excited to be here chatting with you. Um, When we talk about a turn to learning, we're we're starting with an assumption. And and the assumption, I think, is um, one that we've seen born out at colleges and universities across the country and, and maybe across the world. And that is that for a long time, um, some of the attention um, at colleges and universities were focused on things that were other than what happened in the classroom. And by attention, we mean resources. Um, so uh, in terms of what an institution might spend in terms of supporting the classroom activities, the teaching and learning activities, um, but also strategy, um, what it meant for a college and university to really start to um, think of the core mission of teaching uh, to our students um, as fundamental to the strategy of the institution. So we can think about all of the other things that have been both co-curricular, but also fundamentally institutional that have turned attention away from learning that have happened over the past 7,500 years in, in colleges and universities probably in the past 30 or so years, uh, maybe even back to the mid-1980s, we really started to see, I think, a kind of shift where there was a little bit more attention being paid to how students learn, how we learn as, as human beings. And we started to see that actually start to manifest itself in classroom practice. And so 
You can think about the student-centered classroom, for example, as kind of one of those moments in which um, we saw a kind of turn to learning where we really started to pay attention to the classroom dynamic, trying to move away from the lecture, for example. In 2012, we kind of mark a moment where that turn to learning really had a presence on campus, in part because of um, the, the kind of nascent MOOC revolution, the fear and the anxiety of what industries other than higher ed might bring to the teaching and learning space for our students. Um, and that sense of the potential for disruption, but the anxiety that that brought really started to, um, in certain places, refocus, um, we think, or at least focus maybe that turn to learning we mark from the past 30, 35 years um, into uh, the space of higher ed, where we started to see uh, an attention being paid to how students were learning. And so we marked that moment and say, okay, well, we did it. Um, we've, we've started to make this turn. We've started to, to look at how the classroom practice um, has shifted and changed. And in 2012, we really started to see a moment where we could really pay attention to what was happening in teaching and learning, not only in the classroom, but online as well, and the modalities in between. And our concern, our interest in this book is trying to maintain that momentum and can, can actually to increase the momentum and increase the focus on teaching and learning. And I think we saw in the last year, last 15 months or so, um, that turn to learning paid dividends at institutions that had paid attention to what was happening in the classroom that built up support infrastructure. But even if an institution didn't have the resources to do it, I think we also saw that as an industry, as an ecosystem, the effect of that turn to learning was widespread. And we really saw an important need to pay attention to how our students were um, thriving in the classroom, uh, were being resilient in the face of the pandemic. Um, and we're, we're learning at a moment where everything else at the institutions of higher ed, colleges and universities across the country, was being pushed aside so we could really focus in on that teaching and learning um, activity. And for us, that's, that's a, it's an important piece, but it's also important that we continue to pay attention to it and think about it going forward. Josh, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, I, I can add to that. Uh, first, Catherine, it's really great to be here with you and for us to be together. One of the things we talked a great deal in the first book is how we've really together been developing this discipline of advancing learning and, and evolving our institutions to advance learning. And, you know, just thinking about over the past 18 months or so, we just haven't been physically together. And being here with you now, I, I know I, I'm looking at you because we're on Zoom, but everyone else is just hearing us. Um, it really makes me think how much I miss us being in the room together to talk about these kind of issues. Um, I think we've got to, I was thinking about how we got to know each other. And Catherine, you did an external review for, for Dartmouth. We got to know each other through the organizations that we come together to talk about Centers for Teaching and Learning. So I think, you know, one of the things in our learning innovation that Eddie and I talk about is how important our colleagues in this community is of academics or advancing learning at our institutions. Wow, I couldn't agree with you more, Josh. The it's so true. And I think I feel a little bit spoiled because I get to do this podcast. And so I can reach out to colleagues like you. And even though we're not in the room together, we're seeing each other and we're having a conversation. And that is such a treat. So thank you for that. And um, thank you for that summary, Eddie. 
That was um, really interesting. And it sounds like you would say that turn to learning was really evidenced and made more visible by the pandemic, right? By all the things that happened in the pandemic. Um, so I think I would totally agree with that. It was almost sometimes felt like the first time some people at the university actually thought about teaching and learning. So um, I guess if we could say there's a silver lining there, that might be it. <laughs> so I found a quote in your book very striking. Let me read the quote for our listeners. We have no shortage of knowledge about how learning works and how this knowledge can be applied to advanced teaching. What we lack is an understanding of the conditions in which learning science propagates through institutions to change organizational structures and teaching practices. So I have a couple questions about this quote. Um, what is needed to discover these conditions? How do we get there? And would culture change you know, something like the value that institutions assign to teaching, for example, be one of those conditions necessary for this, this kind of change. Uh, Josh, do you want to kick us off on this one? Sure. Um, first of all, I'll say it's, it's as for Eddie and I as scholars, people who wrote this first book, it's really rewarding to have a, a peer and a colleague read back something that you wrote. Um, it's kind of a great kind of feeling. So thanks for doing that. And yeah, that was a pretty good quote. Um, in listening to that quote, I don't know if it's totally true the first thing we said. I mean, I think there's a lot more we can learn about learning science and teaching methodologies and that kind, kind of thing. So I think, you know, there, there's nowhere near the end of, of our learning about um, how teaching works and how learning science works. But I think it really is true and we try to explore this in depth, that we're not, we're not really sure how universities structure their organizations around what we know about learning science. What we do know, and I think this has been the case at your university, is there's, over the last decade or so, there's been so much change, so much organizational change, um, which we identified this at many institutions where what used to be distinct and really distributed across campus have come together into what, what we term integrated teaching and learning centers. And these are CTLs which do the traditional CTL work of educator and educational development, but often add elements of learning design, online programs, degree and non-degree, um, work on other issues such as um, equity, inclusion, um, and diversity, work on issues of maybe writing, um, preparing future scholars, all under one roof. Media, media educators is, is kind, of, kind of a big thing. And over the last decade, this has happened at, at many centers, but it was almost always independently. It was schools coming saying, well, we have all these non-faculty educators around the institution. Maybe we should bring them under one, one roof, um, under one organization, because they can have more impact. But it's been very different at every school, the way it's been funded, the way it's been organized. And one of the things that Eddie and I are trying to do is try to make sense of 
well, why is it that this trend is happening across institutions? Like, what are what are the the, the common drivers? And not every school's done that. Now, Dartmouth still has separate institutions where where Georgetown was very early in this integrated for candles. So we're trying to figure out well, what were the reasons, and then what will happen going forward. I, I think what we've tried to identify is we really do need to study this. We need to understand this and try to be systemic and systematic. Um, try to build some theory about why this is happening, and then look at the, the implications. Um, Eddie, how do, how do you think about this? That's a great answer, Josh. I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right. And certainly, I think one of the things that we explore pretty heavily in the book, I think one of the, the places where we, we actually don't um, give enough attention to in the book um, on this, this particular question is the way in which institutions were likely structured with the wrong sense of how students learn or how we learn as human beings. Um, and so I think we, we kind of, we, we approach the question from the perspective of we need to do more to try to think about how our institutions could be structured to encourage a particular kind of uh, engagement with students that would have a, the deepest and the most resonant impact with our students. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's likely the case and, and Sanjay Sarma in, in Grasp makes, I think, a really good case that um, our institutions are structured in, in, in exactly the wrong way based on exactly the wrong sense of how people learn. Um, and that what we're trying to do and what we're, I think, in dialogue with as we kind of think through this process is what could we do to make sure that the institutions have the right structures in place, both at the kind of curricular level, also at the really at the accreditation level and the expectations that are existent on institutions. And then as Josh is talking about on the support structures that help to encourage a particular kind of approach to teaching and learning that we know is a lot more complex today, in part because of technology, in part because of a growing student body. Right? It's um, there are a lot of things that are, are actually making that work of teaching and learning much more difficult. So, I think in some sense in the book we we probably started from a position of we all um, we're trying to do our best, but we can do better. I think this probably a really good argument to be made that, well, we didn't do a very good job at all and we need to rethink um, how we were doing what we were doing and that that needs to um, really kind of refocus. I think, and in, in, in by that, by not a very good job, I mean in terms of a, a very narrow structure of what uh, we think about in teaching and learning, not necessarily the, the larger context of higher ed, which I think both Josh and I think is incredibly important and valuable and uh, we're not necessarily trying to suggest that what we need to do is tear everything down and start a bunch of boot camps everywhere, but rather we need to think about the good and we need to really focus in on this problem and this question of teaching and learning, how that plays out in, in higher ed. Yes, I think your point resonates with me very much because in fact, this whole fall season of podcasts is sort of trying to look at those systems, right? We have a lot of legacy systems that I think sometimes, you know, in, in the category of unintended consequences, actually make it harder for us to do the work we do and make it harder for instructors to change in some ways when you think about systems of evaluation, um, systems of accreditation, um, systems of credentialing for students. You know, it's so I think that's a really powerful point to be made. Thank you for that. So I'm wondering if you could please expand on your vision of how the scholarship of learning innovation, and I'm going to quote here from their book, 
relocates the unit of analysis of the conditions that support or inhibit student learning from that of the individual student to the scale of the institution and to everywhere in between, end of quote. Aren't institutions already doing this kind of research? <laughs> uh, well, maybe. Um, I think there are, there are certainly pockets of uh, work happening at different institutions across the country where people are trying to understand uh, some of these questions. But I, don't, I, I think uh, the point of the book and what Josh and I are trying to get at in general as we kind of think through this problem is that um, we're not doing enough to try to understand the dynamic that has shifted from the faculty relationship to students as a kind of one-to-many relationship that is now much more complex, again, in part because of technology, but uh, there are a variety of factors. We know more about our students. We, we certainly have a, a growing student body and a shifting uh, demographic in our student body and so on that we're trying to pay attention to to help achieve their greatest success um, in the teaching and learning mission at institutions. What we're really kind of interested in is that shift from faculty member walking into the classroom and simply teaching um, as a kind of control of her domain in that space and expectation that that is all that really is required in order to generate the best possible teaching and learning experience for our students. That's kind of the assumption. You bring an expert in the field, the greater the expert, the greater the teaching and learning experience is part of, partly the assumption, uh, which is why we hire maybe first and foremost scholars often rather than great teachers. But we, we hire people um, with the expectation that that expertise is going to somehow be carried to our students, um, in a, you know, whether that's through lectures or even in a shifting dynamic to a more student-centered active learning classroom. Our arguments and um, whether or not the research is happening, uh, but the fundamental argument is that, that that dynamic, that faculty member to student dynamic, requires a, a much greater infrastructure and support network, whether that's um, at the institution alone. Um, so you start to think about the kinds of uh, structures that Josh was just talking about in terms of support for teaching and learning, or the larger scholarly space in which we learn more and understand more about what's happening um, in that dynamic, uh, in that teaching and learning dynamic. Um, or will we get to things like institutional infrastructure to support innovative classrooms, to support the technologies that become necessary for kind of full modality teaching? All of those things um, we think are important that institutions start to pay attention to, not in piecemeal, which I think happens at a lot of institutions. Okay, we need to invest in this thing now. We need to pay attention to a learning management system. We need to pay attention to Google Apps or something along those lines. Rather, to think about that strategically, to think about that as um, part of the direction that an institution needs to understand if they're going to be ready for what's coming in the next 10, 20, 50 years of higher education. Yeah, I, I didn't think that's very well said. And I, Catherine, I want to bring this back to one of the things that you said earlier about the pandemic, that COVID-19 has been such an interesting time for people in our profession. Like at no time have Centers for Teaching and Learning been more central to the resilience and ongoing operations of our colleges and universities. Um, for all of us, our life has been completely crazy for the past 18 months or so, as so much of what's happened at universities has had to run through university CTLs. We've never been so busy, 
because all of a sudden we had to work with every instructor on either you know training or um, consulting or communities of practice to help make this transition overnight from residential to remote. And I think the the schools that have invested in organizations that bring together all these learning capabilities and, and that have that had built that up pre-pandemic were in a much better uh, situation to actually make that transition so we could do quality remote learning. The 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 expertise were there, the non-faculty educators, the the, the educational developers, the media educators, the instructional designers, they had those relationships with many faculty. And really the, the methods that we would take to say, do online or blended education could then extend so we could have this complete shift to remote education. So I think the question is that, you know, since we've demonstrated how important the learning organizations are on campus for the resilience of our institutions. You know, we've demonstrated that during COVID. What is going to happen in the months and years to come? Will, will institutions keep making those investments in these types of organizations? Or will we have a snapback where, you know, everyone just wants to come face to face and, and not work with non-faculty educators, not use all these kind of tools? I think this is something we need to study and really get on the table. It's been difficult because we're all so sort of stretched and tapped out, kind of making it through our days. Yes, I think those are really interesting questions. And I, I think a term I have come to dislike quite a bit is the term of going back to normal or a new normal because as Eddie said earlier um, the normal wasn't always so great for a lot of learners so I don't think we want to go back to normal we want to go back to better but it's very hard to know as you just said Josh right what the appetite for that would be from instructors who also have had a very tumultuous 18 months. And, um, you know, people reach a sort of limit, I think, on learning um, new technologies, new ways of teaching. So it's, it's hard to know. It will be an interesting fall semester, I think, in that regard. I want to get to my next question because it's one of my favorite parts of your book. <laughs> Um, I loved the conceptualization you offered of the, quote, magical provost. Um, you described this magical provost as, quote, the one who can knock down bureaucratic barriers and find the funding for new organizations and initiatives aimed at dramatic improvements in student learning, end of quote. And this is a really familiar scenario, I think, for a lot of teaching centers, having that magical provost make it happen for you. But what I hear you saying is that um, having a magical provost, while it may be a good thing in general, it's not necessarily our best hope for achieving the kind of change that you're encouraging people to think about in your book. Um, we need that organizational, that institutional change, and a magical provost may not be sufficient to, to make that happen. Um, I think your ideas about what 
this kind of organizational change would look like are, um, I would say, pretty exciting and maybe even a little bit radical. So I would love for you to um, talk us through the change you're imagining. And I think some of these changes have already happened at Georgetown. So be very interesting to hear your perspectives on this. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start here. Um, you know, th this idea of, of the magical provost, I think many of us experienced this over the past decade or, or so, that, that there was some person at, at a leadership level, an institutional leadership level, that for whatever reason came into strong alliance with the, um, the people who are running the Centers for Teaching and Learning or people who are running, say, continuing education or, or online education and said, oh, I kind of get that it's better if you're together and I get that you really should be well-funded you know, at least some more more consistent funding. As Eddie and I, right, we try to trace why that happened. You know, we look at the MOOC bubble as one of the reasons. Um, and there there are some, some other uh, reasons behind that. But we also talk about it in the book. We say that's a kind of a fragile way to um, run an institutional strategy. Because, as we know, um, provosts, presidents, they they move on. So we're, we try to look for ways that we can actually have that kind of institutional strategy where you invest in learning with faculty and non-faculty educators working together um, it, with a more stable foundation. And in the book, we suggest some ways of doing that. And we're, we're, we're very realistic that we have to think about in this era of scarcity, when the, the very challenging demographic trends and cost trends, that those of us in the teaching and learning world, people like us who, um, you know, our kind of learning science geeks, we also have to really understand university budgets, university operations. We have to understand ways that we can bring in dollars actually to fund our mission. One of the things that we talk about is that a lot of the operations that universities have started to outsource, particularly in the online learning world, if, if we can actually build those capabilities, we can keep those dollars in-house and build those capabilities. I, I think that, that Eddie at Georgetown has really been a, a leader in this in terms of um, over many years, he's, he's built this integrated center. And he's also shown through Georgetown that it's possible to bring in resources that can go to the entire mission, that can really, dollars that, that can go into the residential classroom as well as the online classroom. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that we try to stress in this book that places like Georgetown and maybe others are trying to move into this model. And we've got to really sort of talk about that more. Uh, Eddie? Thanks, Josh. I, I think that's a, a, a great um, great answer and a great look at what we were trying to get at. I think one of the things we, we didn't do in the book um, is, is sort of talk about the other end of the spectrum if you don't have the magical provost, or even if you do, what it means to help that. Uh, I keep thinking of a leprechaun all of a sudden. I don't know why. This is the magical version of a provost that's coming to my mind. Maybe it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, but even if you do have that person, um, there are probably a, a bunch of different kinds of uh, roles that people have to play. Um, at Georgetown, we often sort of see that as a kind of gadfly role where you have to kind of irritate enough to try to get change to happen or a pirate role. Like you're, you're just trying to go off to the side and trying to create something that's not going to kind of fit into the mainstream, but is going to allow you to do what you think is the right thing for the institution, even if the institution hasn't quite caught up 
in that. And in my experience, um, that's been in part where I've been able to maybe be somewhat um, helpful is seeing the things that are not quite um, central yet, or not quite seen as part of the vision, proving that they actually matter and can be important, and then getting institutional investment after it. So that's a lot of work, right? You have to you have to have someone who is willing to take that risk to be entrepreneurial and say, okay, these are the directions that we need to go in, and then hope that they're making the right decision, which we don't always make the right decisions in that space. And um, but hope you're making the right decision, and then the, the rest of the institution, or at least the leadership, will come along and help support that. That's that's also not sustainable. I think in any many ways, that's um, as unsustainable as this notion of a magical provost, right? You have, you're really relying on personalities, you're relying on how people work in order to make things happen. And so I, I think one of the things that we're really hoping in, in our next book is actually trying to really look at this, this sense of the strategy or the lack thereof that institutions have around this question of learning and really try to understand what it means to develop a strategic direction that makes this kind of investment in teaching and learning core to the mission of the institution. Um, it's very rare, as, as, as far as we can tell in kind of our initial research, one, it's, it's generally rare that institutions have institutional-wide strategies. These are often dependent on um, initiatives, fundraising, certain kinds of expectations around delivering those services, but not necessarily a larger strategy. And then it seems even rarer that those um, have at their core an investment in teaching and learning, which goes against often the institutional mission that you will read at a lot of institutions, that these do not necessarily align with, um, say, the lack of strategy or the strategies that are in place that are driven by fundraising, that are driven by really trying to create a context for, for students to be there rather than an, an emphasis and an energy in teaching and learning. And so there are a lot of really rare pieces at play <laughs> Uh, it seems in this dynamic that we're we're trying to um, highlight and, and make an argument that if we're going to be um, sustainable, if we're going to provide a higher education for the next fifty to one hundred years, that is responsive to changing workforces, changing demographics, that is responsive to an unchanging environment, um, that we need to be thinking forward. Um, not necessarily in a fully disruptive way, but in an evolutionary way that really give, that follows a strategic direction. And we want to give some folks you know, some sense of what we think is important about that strategic direction. Um, it's just disappointing to look back and realize that there are so few strategic directions that actually align with that, that sense of what's important and what we learned was so important in the past year. Yeah, if I recall correctly, one of your recommendations was that um, people like us who who work do this work in teaching centers um, maybe should have different kinds of roles. The center should maybe not be a center per se. Am I recalling that correctly? It should be more like an academic department, and I think that's the sense I get that of a change that's happened at Georgetown. Would that be right? Yeah, we have we've certainly tried. It's it's hard um, given the institutional structures that are in place and the 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 really I think definitive dividing line between academic and administrative structures at institutions, in part because of the uh, funding structures that are in place to support those. Um, but at Georgetown, we started with or I started with a kind of question: Why is it that we do not at institutions of higher ed leverage the expertise that we have in our academic departments to help? think about the future of those institutions. We, we have faculty governance, which is often a different problem or a different sort of 
part of the institutional dynamic. But we don't, for example, think about um, the folks in our school of business who are the greatest experts in this space, helping us to think about our financial structure and, and what we're doing. Um, we don't often think about the kind of academic spaces as turning inward and looking at the success of the institution, not from just the department space, which is where it often happens for from an academic, but for the institution as, as a whole. And so what would it mean for us to, to have a, a dynamic where we had teaching and learning happening that was also seeing the university as a laboratory itself. And then that was leading into and supporting the service component of the work that we do and really trying to see a kind of cross-pollinating, mutually reinforcing dynamic there. It runs into all sorts of pickups, again, institutional funding and politics and different kinds of ways of thinking about what it means to do that work. But I still think that that's, you know, maybe our best hope in higher ed to think about how we, we actually do have a faculty governance model that is writ large at the university level, not simply focused in on what happens in individual departments. Yeah, I think that would be pretty radical, actually. I, I like the idea of it's, it's evolving, it's not disrupting, but I do think it's a significant uh, change in the way things have been done. And, you know, it's tough. These legacy systems have been in place for so many years and it's hard. I, I don't think it's really any one person's job to like look at those legacy systems and say, oh, hey, maybe we need an update here. So um, I very much appreciate the work that, that you both are doing in this realm. It gives, it gives me hope, and I think probably a lot of other people in teaching centers as well, that, that things will evolve in that direction. And I know it's hard work, um, so I'm wondering as we close if you would share with us what it is that keeps you inspired and motivates you to believe in the possibility of change in higher ed? Because I know we are all tired. It's been a long, long 18 months. So how do you stay motivated in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so Josh goes on vacation and he comes back and tells me I have to do a whole bunch of stuff. So he, he gets rested and then he pushes me. So that's kind of how I, I stay motivated. Um, no, we, I think we, you know, we, we care, we believe, we want to do good work. We think this is a, for, for many of us, for at least for me, I got into this, I got into higher ed because I believed in the, the space. I believed in the work. It, it was transformative for me when I was younger. Um, and it still, I think, is transformative for me as, as I get older. Um, and so really want to have a positive impact on that kind of transformation that could be fundamentally effective for all of our students. I think um, it's an exciting opportunity, not just to think about what happens in the classroom, but to, to think from my perspective of just about what higher ed is and the role that it plays in our society, the role that it plays for our students, um, what it means to think about this, this really complex dynamic of research and teaching, um, and then all of these other co-curricular activities that help in the formation of, of young uh, women and men as they kind of make their way through higher ed. And then to think about the larger ecosystem that is um, two-year schools and four-year schools, privates and public and research-focused and liberal arts-focused and so on, and just trying to understand that dynamic, which is a really amazing thing in, in a society that is so driven often by dollars rather than um, a kind of civic investment. And so like having that kind of contribution, if possible. 
Yeah, so Eddie and I are now writing the learning innovation blog on Inside Higher Ed together, um, which has been it's been a great platform, um, and we had some pieces that we're working on online program management. Um, so, and some of our concerns. So I hope people check that out. Um, I, Catherine, I think your question is great. And, and it was nice to get it beforehand to reflect um, uh, on this question a little bit. Um, I think, you know, the, the three of us are, are doing something, I think maybe something a little bit different in higher ed is that we're, we're practitioner scholars. I mean, I think in Catherine, you doing this, this podcast, it's one way that we add knowledge to our field, right? So you're doing all the work that you normally do and, running a center, and I'm sure your life's absolutely crazy, but you're also taking the time to bring these conversations together to try to build knowledge. And, you know, Eddie and I are in this situation where we're trying to navigate these academic careers where there's so much going on at our institutions because learning is now central, right? Like, like with COVID, we know we've learned that the thing that has to keep going is teaching and learning. Like, we have to keep educating our students. And so it's made our work busier than ever, right? And we're also trying to understand what's going on, how our institutions are, are changing. Um, and I think that role as pr practitioner scholars is incredibly exciting. It's dynamic. You learn new things. You also build this great community. I mean, Catherine, going back to how we talked about, we know each other really well across institutions. We share a lot of information. And we, Eddie and I think that we're really building an academic discipline. It's it's, it's new, it's nascent, um, but we're all doing this together. And I think that's what it's, it's the fact that we're doing it together, that we have these colleagues, that we have these academic, these practitioner, scholar colleagues is what is so motivating and makes this such a great job. Well, I'm right there with both of you. I could geek out for hours on these questions uh, that we've all been discussing and being able to have conversations with my colleagues like you is what keeps me going. You know, the podcast is a lot of extra work, but it feeds my passion for the work. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I'm right there with you. So I'd like to thank you both so much for taking this time to talk with us today and for sharing your work and all your deep thinking around these big questions and for helping all of those of us in this realm who are trying to move higher education, teaching and learning to a, a new and better place. So thanks so much, Josh and Eddie. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.